Why is it possible to do everything that most churches would expect of you and still live a deeply unsatisfying life? If you've been around church for a while, you can get the sense that what God fundamentally expects from you is three things. One, to read the Bible, even if no one ever teaches you how. Two, to ask God for things. And three, to be a generally moral person. And that's not a bad vision of life in the spirit. It just strikes me that it's small. Because I know people who have read their Bible consistently, who have asked God for things over the years, and who have been generally moral people, but who have had relationships in disrepair, live pretty joyless lives, and have habits of unrepentant sin behind the surface covered over by a thin veneer of social performance. And I would imagine that you know those people too. Don't point. I've wondered over the past several months if that's the best that the church can do. Because if that's the best vision of Christian life that the church can offer, I'm not sure the church is worth 10% of my income, let alone 100% of my life. It's not that God doesn't want us reading our Bible. Of course he does. We're asking him for things because God delights in hearing the things that are on our heart. We're being generally moral people because God wants that too. Life in the spirit isn't less than that, but it must be more than that or else there's a lot left on the table, I think. And so as you can tell, I've been approaching scripture with some angst over the past several months, trying to figure out really the answer to one question. What does it mean really to live the kind of life God wants? And so I randomly uh, ended up reading this passage that you just heard read so beautifully from Titus, absolutely accidentally, did not, as most people don't intend, you know, to read Titus on purpose, stumbled into it, right? And so right in the middle of, of my angst, I walked into this letter that Paul is writing to his friend who he sent to the island of Crete. Paul is writing to Titus having commissioned him to essentially bring order to a pretty chaotic connection of churches on Crete. Crete's a small island full of little port cities. So it's a great place for the gospel to spread, but the challenge is that it's known for immorality and wickedness and corruption. Many, maybe most of the men that lived on this island had been mercenary soldiers fighting for the highest bidder. And they worshiped the Greek god Zeus and their worship formed them as worship always does to be people whose character reflected Zeus. And so as part of their worship, they would talk about how Zeus was underhanded and tricky and seductive. And so they started patterning their character after that as well. To be called a Cretan in, in the ancient Near Eastern world was the same thing as being called a liar or someone who is suspicious. Sounds like a great place to start sailing into, right? And so uh, <laughs> there were some churches starting up here and before long they came under the influence of wicked Cretan leaders who said they were Christians, who participated in religious ceremonies like circumcision and observance of some of the law, but who also, as they claimed the name of Jesus, lived lives of disorder and corruption and exploited other people for their own profit and pleasure. And on top of this, people in the churches were taking their ideas about Zeus, his cunning, his craftiness, his deceptiveness and applying those ideas to Jesus too. And so into this storm of complete chaos and disorder sails Titus. Facing a group of people who have been trained to achieve as much pleasure and gain as much money as possible, even maybe especially 
in underhanded and crafty ways, but who as they step into the church are wondering, really, what is the kind of life God wants? And here's how Paul answers that question. He says, be ready to do whatever is good. He writes, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle toward everyone. And then he shares, because he's writing to a specific context, he shares some things that he imagines could get in the way. He says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul's writing here, not just a sketch of a few behavior modifications. This is a description that Paul's writing of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit puts roots all the way down into a person's character. And he says that when the Spirit gets hold of us all the way down, there are three specific areas that we can look for signs in. The first is our desires. Once, Paul says, we were foolish, enslaved by passions and pleasures, but when the kindness of God appears, he saved us. In other words, it's hard to be free to do what's good when you're craving things that aren't good. It's hard to have a heart pointed toward others when your habit trains your heart to be pointed back to yourself. Part of what it means to be ready to do what's good is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in reorienting our desires so they realign with the things God wants. But the leaders Titus is facing in Crete aren't doing this. There are people who say that they care deeply about the things of God even as their life demonstrates other priorities. They say their central focus is the person and the work of Christ, but what they really care, care about is doing whatever they already wanted to do and giving Jesus a nod through rituals. In other words, they're not that different from us at our worst. Many of us cross the line into life in Christ, and yet we maintain over the years attachments and desires and even whole systems of belief that at best just have Jesus slapped on, and at worst are below Jesus altogether. We attend church, we participate in religious rituals, and yet behind the scenes we nourish quiet addictions that leave us feeling like we're living a double life. We attach to political ideologies that use Jesus' name to endorse a hunger for power that Jesus never had. And so in the name of God, we become anxious and tense and dismissive of people we disagree with. We have a chance to look after the interests of others, the widow, the poor, the orphan, and do so only if it's convenient and doesn't cost much. We see unjust laws that exploit the vulnerable and race-based violence, which we've seen too much of even in the past couple weeks, that leaves our brothers and sisters in Christ fearful when they gather for worship or walk outside of their home. And yet we avoid addressing it because we're afraid of what other people are going to think of us. We make goals about how to build our wealth, but not how to build our generosity. And we put welcome signs on our front porches, but hide behind the blinds when our neighbors come over asking for help. In other words, we're eager to do what's good as long as it feels good and comes easy. 
We approach religion, even the church, as a part of our buffet of self-development. We bend the knee on Sunday and use the rest of our lives to chase after what we really want. I think what Paul is saying here, church, is that we are not free to use God's name to endorse our own bad checks. We can't expect Jesus's endorsement if what we really want is our own way. It can be tempting to react to that by just trying to muster up more self-control, right? And yet I think what Paul is saying is that we don't just need more self-control, we need different desires. A couple years ago, I got a new phone. And when I did, I started texting on it and noticed that there was a little evil box in the very top of the keyboard that tried to predict what I was going to text. It was always wrong. And yet I always hit it every time. So it was wreaking havoc on my text messages. And I remember walking into the office after complaining about it for two days, my texts were all wrong. I complained about it to a friend and he looked at me and he said, have you even checked the settings? I said, I have not. And so he took my phone. He said, give me the phone. I gave it to him. Within three taps, he had completely changed my keyboard. So all the errors in text messaging since then have been my fault. Uh, but when he handed it back to me, he looked me in the eye and he said, most of the problems you're going to have with your experience on your phone uh, comes from the fact that the settings are not set up to produce the kind of experience you want. Check the settings. Church, I think the problem is often with our default settings. There are desires that come naturally to us that lead us to the kind of things we shouldn't get involved in. But we get tangled up into those things and then they get tangled up in us. I think the gospel of Christ then, according to Paul, is not just that we can be forgiven, it's that we can be made whole. Church, God can change your default settings when you face injustice and could choose to walk by, when you're browsing on the internet and could choose to go places you should not go, when you're three months sober and pass by the bar, when someone close to you says or does something that hits you in a sensitive spot and you're tempted to pour stewardship of your anger, God is right in that moment, making a way for you to apply the character of Christ to the situation before you. It'll probably take willpower. It'll almost certainly take mentors. It'll almost certainly take at least a few sessions of clinical counseling. But this is not just the fruit of self-discipline we're talking about. This is holiness. The faithfulness that you practice at first with great effort is multiplied by the Holy Spirit into a reflex to do what's right. So you can eventually say with Paul, once I was enslaved by all kinds of passions, but then God saved me through the washing of renewal and rebirth by the Holy Spirit. Okay, move on. The second domain, the first is desires, the second is pace. Tell the people, Paul writes, be ready to do whatever's good. The word ready in that passage means prepared and receptive. And your experience may be very different from mine, but I have never met a person who is receptive and in a hurry at the same time. Right? When I think about Jesus, I pretty much always think about him on the move, like doing stuff, right? And so I think that shaped my, uh, my normative perception of how my pace should be. And so when I think about Jesus, if I were to use descriptive words, I would use powerful or loving or even 
constantly moving. But Dallas Willard was asked if he could sum up Jesus' personality in one word. And he said, yes, relaxed. I'm pretty tempted to dismiss this because I read through the scripture and see Jesus experiencing some emotions I don't always associate with relaxation, right? He experiences anger. He experiences anguish. And yet, when I, when I look at the story of Jesus from the moment he was left in the temple as a child to his baptism to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus lived with a calm confidence that emerged from communion with God. That is so different than, from how most of us relate to the rhythm of our lives, right? Most of us relate to our lives and our time much like a water ski relates to a boat, you know, we're constantly towed behind it, just like trying not to get thrown off, using all our dexterity to stay afloat, hurried, anxious, stressed, at war with ourselves. And so in the process of trying to live out a Christian life, we become less fully alive. We snap at our neighbors instead of listening to them. We moralize our preferences so that people who disagree with us aren't just wrong, they're bad. We judge and condemn and discourage the young people around us, even our own children, instead of calling out their gifts because we're already on the way to the next thing. We give up laughter because we think we need to take everything so seriously. We see needs that God might, God might call us to meet, but we feel too busy to meet them. We feel heroic for how tired we can make ourselves and think of Sabbath or rest as something other people are lucky to do because they're not as needed as I am. We have lots of good things on our calendar, in other words. But we're not ready to do what's good. Most of us, I think, know that our relationship in this way with time isn't working, but we keep it up because we're, exist we're addicted to exhaustion as a sign that we're valuable. And we're hooked on hurry because we want to keep ourselves distracted from what we fear we would see if we moved slowly enough to really look at ourselves. When we're asked how, our do how we're doing, I think most of us are tempted at least to say busy because it helps us feel needed and wanted and important. And yet behind the scenes, I think most of us also wonder what it would look like to slow down. I wanna take a time out here and say that I know that there is no one size fits all prescription for what to do with your time, right? Time is deeply seasonal. Some of us are caring for aging parents or young kids or working three jobs just to put enough food on the table for our families. And so I think that's why it's really good news that what Paul is offering here is not an invitation to just do one more religious thing. He's inviting us to follow Christ into a less anxious relationship with time, to reevaluate our commitments and maybe drop some of them. Of course, not volunteering at the church, but drop some of them. And follow Christ in a relationship with time in which we can acknowledge our needs with faith that God will care for them and meet others' needs without feeling stolen from. Where exhaustion is a problem to be addressed, not a badge to be worn. Where our efforts emerge from a quiet sense of connection with God in a Sabbath day or sablets, if we need to break it up, are the default, not something that we need to have an excuse for a rhythm in which our lives are receptive enough to allow God to give us gifts that right now our hands are just too full to receive. And that brings me to the third and last category Paul addresses in this letter, and that's relationships. 
Paul writes, at one time we hated others and we were hated by them. We related by malice and envy, seeing other people as competitors. But now we slander no one. And our relationships that were once fraught and tense are to be marked by peace and gentleness and an eagerness to do right by our neighbors. I love that idea. But if I'm honest, I know it's costly to relate this way because it's just not normal. Right? Resentment is everywhere and it's easy to hide. Most of us at one point or another in our life know the damage that's done even to our own soul by having enough resentment toward another person that we can barely look them in the eye. Some of us have faced trauma in our lives that we can't just choose to let go of. It takes years of work. But many of us who could choose hold on to resentment in our relationships because having a grievance against someone is a way to feel superior to them and bond with others. Grievance is a little bit like sugar for relationships. It's not nourishing and it feels bad later, but it's delicious in the moment. <laughs> a theologian friend of mine uh, that's moved to Nashville in the past couple years looked me in the eye once and said, you know what the worst sin is? I said, what? He said, somebody else's. Because when I sin, it's understandable. When you sin, it's shocking. And I laughed at that. And yet, many of us have carried around a hurt against someone because forgiveness, let alone reconciliation, feels vulnerable and foreign. And resentment, although it's toxic, feels familiar. Safe. I've had to practice this in my own life over the past couple months. Around eight weeks ago, I was praying over a person that I'd been carrying some hurt toward for a while. And I noticed that every time I saw him walk near me, I thought, ugh. And as I was praying, I sensed God say, you know, you're annoyed after being around this person for two minutes, but I'm around them all the time. And I love them. Which probably means that you're not seeing something about them that's true that I can see. I hate that. But since then, I've been slowly practicing learning to release him and myself from a pattern of relationship that would lead me to disparage the image of God in him. I've had to practice confrontation where there's been dysfunction, right? Otherwise, you just enable something dysfunctional, which is not a good look either. But at the same time, as I confront... I'm, I'm bound to him, committed to seeing him as a person God loves and is near to and through whom God can teach me something I dearly need to learn. So it hasn't gone perfectly. There have been days and weeks and hours where I've just been angry. But I love that person more than I did two months ago. It's made me wonder how different our relationships would be if we were able to clear up our conflicts instead of carrying around this resentment. If we could nonviolently speak what's true, reckon with our feelings instead of stuffing them down and commit to call out the image of God in one another. Church, what I'm describing today in our desires and our pace and our relationships is a different way to live than many of us are used to, right? Who grew up this way? <laughs> and yet it's good news. This isn't a program of moral restraint because self-control isn't the power source here. The Holy Spirit is applying to us in the moment we need it, 
the character of Christ. That's why Paul's recommending it. These aren't add-ons to the Christian life. These are the symptoms of a Christian life, the kind of life that proceeds from deep communion with God. And at the very end of the day, this is just the kind of life that works. If you're hearing this and you think this doesn't sound terribly spiritual, that's because sometimes God bakes into the world an order that makes the spiritual things just make sense. <laughs> what a kindness from God that the life that he's inviting us to is not just spiritual, but functional. A life that works. I imagine the odds are that for many of us, our life is not working in at least one of these areas. Maybe for you, it's your desires. You want to want the things that God cares about more than anything else. But if you're honest with yourself, your hunger, your appetite, your craving, your deepest longing is something else. Maybe it's your pace. You want a pace of life that leads you to be receptive, but you feel crowded and overwhelmed and wonder if you'll ever catch a break. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe you want relationships in which you know and are known, and yet you're hung up in habits of relating to others that don't lead to the kind of healthy connections you want. 